Now will you turn with me in your Bibles this evening to the fifth psalm as we come to it uh, for this second occasion. Psalm number five, and we are going to read the whole of the psalm again to refresh our memories. It has some very rich and very wonderful teaching for us, and originally I had planned to conclude uh, our study and exposition in it this evening, but I feel that uh, we will take another Sunday evening to explore the third and final part of this psalm as it relates to our lives as Christians, and so this evening we are, as I say, looking at it for the second out of three uh, times. Psalm 5, a psalm of David for the director of music for the flutes. Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help, my King and my God. For to you I pray. Morning by morning, O Lord, you hear my voice. Morning by morning, I lay my requests before you and wait in expectation. You are not a God who takes pleasure in evil. With you the wicked cannot dwell. The arrogant cannot stand in your presence. You hate all who do wrong. You destroy those who tell lies. Bloodthirsty and deceitful men the Lord abhors. But I, by your great mercy, will come into your house. In reverence I will bow down toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Lord, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make straight your way before me. Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with destruction. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongue they speak deceit. Declare them guilty, O God. Let their intrigues be their downfall. Banish them for their many sins, for they have rebelled against you. But let all who take refuge in you be glad. Let them ever sing for joy. Spread your protection over them, that those who love your name may rejoice in you. For surely, O Lord, you bless the righteous, you surround them with your favor as with a shield. Thanks be to God for this portion of his own inspired word. Now, as I mentioned, we are turning this evening to this fifth psalm for the second time. How wonderful the themes of these early psalms have been to us as we have explored some of them uh, on these recent Sunday evenings. With their themes, you remember the first psalm, the two ways that men may live, the way of the righteous, the godly, and the way of disobedience, the ungodly. And Psalm 2, with its wonderful emphasis upon the kingship of Christ and its powerful message for you and I in this age, that the majority of men may reject the Lord and refuse his ways, but the Lord has set his king upon Mount Zion, and men, whether they like it or not, must one day answer to him, as they will be found in his presence unless they kiss the Son 
and make their peace with him here. And Psalm 3, with its glorious message about the dark hour, the believer's seasons of darkness in the soul, and his spiritual and his physical and his emotional suffering, and yet how the Lord wonderfully comes to the believer and lifts him out of all his darkness and distress as God becomes his shield and his protector round about him. And the fourth psalm, you remember, with its theme of peace, be still. But in the midst of all our frustrations and all the changing circumstances of this fleeting life in which we live, there is a refuge of peace for the Christian as he turns his heart to the Lord and recognizes that God has set apart for himself those who are godly and who love and serve him. Now you remember then that as we came to the fifth psalm in this study of the early psalms, the theme of that psalm, as we saw last Sunday evening, was the believer in the presence of his enemies. The believer living out his life in the midst of his foes who surround him. And as I reminded you last Sunday evening, this is one of the great characteristics of all the psalms that are written by David. The presence of enemies. It is a shadow that is seldom absent from the Davidic psalms. And I reminded you that even in that most beautiful in many ways of the psalms of David, Psalm 23, where you would expect that this shadow of the enemy might be absent, it is there as the Lord prepares a table for David, where? In the midst of my enemies. And you see, the importance of this theme is that there is not merely an historical reference, you see, here to David and the troubles that he had and the rebellion of Absalom with which this psalm is undoubtedly to be associated. It is not merely David's enemies that the psalmist is, is concerned about. It is your enemies and it is mine. And you see, the whole point of this psalm is that there is inspired instruction as to how you and I are to live out our lives in the midst of many foes. My dear Christian friends this evening, how very applicable this teaching is you may remember some of you who have read the catechisms, and I would encourage you to do this, that right at the end of the larger catechism, and we don't read it, do we, as much as we should, with its 196 questions, the penultimate question, the 195th question, deals with this very matter. What do we pray for, says the question, in the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. What do we pray for as Christians in that petition, deliver us from evil or from the evil one? Well, I recommend you to read that wonderful answer to the question in which the following matters occur. We pray, say the Westminster divines, that Satan, the world and the flesh, who, which are ready and powerfully to draw us aside and ensnare us, may be defeated. 
And it goes on to say, we pray that God would so overrule the world and all in it, subdue our fallen nature and restrain Satan, order all things, bestow and bless all means of grace and quicken us to watchfulness in the use of them, that we and all his people may be kept from being tempted to sin. It's a wonderful answer altogether. And the theme of it, you see, is that in this prayer, we are praying for deliverance from all our enemies. Now, you see, as I reminded you last Sunday evening, that Psalm 5, in a sense, is nothing other than an inspired commentary upon the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. You see, as we've come here this evening, what is our situation? We are Christians, we are salt and light in the world. But instead of the world receiving our witness and welcoming it and being willing to follow it, we immediately begin to experience the very contrary thing, don't we? But there is persecution, but there is opposition, but the enemies of the Lord and of the Christian immediately begin to rise up because they don't like the salt that preserves society from its corruption or the light that displays the error and darkness of the world and its ways. And we, like David, begin to see the true nature of the enemy. And you remember that the first answer to that great question, how do I handle this situation of being in enemy territory? The first answer to that question is that I look at the opposition. Now, we dealt with that last Sunday evening. David looks at the ungodly, and he sees that there is nothing in them that he can trust. He sees their character is evil, and their intentions and all their ways tend to destruction. Their throats are an open grave. Their tongues speak deceit, he says. They are filled with intrigues. And the summary of it all in verse 10 is that they are rebels before God. Know your enemy is the first answer to living in enemy territory. But he didn't leave it there, you remember. He was able to make the remarkable conclusion that I am not like them. He was able to see the distinction and to make the separation. He said, Lord, this is what it is like to live in enemy territory, but by your grace, I am not like this. And I applied that encouragement to the hearts of all of you. And I say again, as we come to the second ground of David's encouragement this evening, hold on to that first ground. Know your enemy. But as you see the strength of the opposition against you and how Satan, through men and through temptation and other ways, would dim your light and quench the salt of your life, say to yourself, But Lord, by your grace, I know that I am not like them. But I am different. And I know that your presence is with me. 
No, you see, then we come to the second great ground that David gives us for his assurance in entering into the rest that belongs to the righteous. He's looked at the ungodly. He's seen what they're like. He's seen that he is different. And now, secondly, you see, in the body of this psalm, he looks at his own relationship with God. Now, I reminded you last Sunday evening that the psalm had fallen into two separate sets of stanzas. In two sets of stanzas, you see, he looks at the ungodly in verses 4 to 6 as you're following through this in your Bibles with me. And again, you see in verses 9 to 11, two of these stanzas describe the ungodly as he looks at them. But that is not all in this psalm. There are three other stanzas interspersed where he looks at his relationship with God. And thank God for these other stanzas. Because if we only looked at the opposition and what it is like to live in enemy territory, we would still be discouraged even though we know that we are not like that. We must look then secondly at our own relationship with God as David does. Now how beautifully this is set out. You see in the first of these stanzas, verses 1 to 3, he looks at his, his relationship with God in the realm of prayer. He prays expectantly. And then in the second of these stanzas, in verses 7 to 8, he worships God fervently. And he looks at that relationship with his God. And then in the final two concluding verses, 11 and 12, he trusts in the Lord implicitly. Let me say those again. He prays expectantly, verses 1 to 3. He worships fervently, verses 7 to 8. He trusts implicitly in verses 11 to 12. In other words, in these great stanzas, he turns full face to God. He's no longer looking at the ungodly and the nature of the opposition around him. He's looking up and he's turning his full face toward the Lord whom he worships and loves and desires to serve in the midst of enemy territory. Now I want us simply this evening to look at the first of these three parts of his relationship to God. He prays expectantly. Now let me remind you again of this man's situation. He is in the midst of enemies. Undoubtedly, this psalm was written in connection, you see, with Absalom's rebellion. This son of David's great love, with whom David's own soul was knit, like that of brothers, had rebelled against David and turned against him treacherously. And David was now a fugitive, as we have seen, before his son Absalom and all Israel had had their hearts stolen from David to the obedience and service of Absalom, this stripling. And here was David, stripped himself of every outward vestige that he was a child of God. The people deserted him, his kingdom gone, his glory and honor laid in the dust, a fugitive from the face of the earth. 
And in the midst of these great troubles and surrounded by all of these enemies, it should be very significant, you see, to us to see what David did first of all. In the midst of this profound physical and emotional and spiritual suffering, what does this man of God do in the midst of enemy territory? Well, what would you do? Let me ask you that question. What is your place of first resort? You know so many of us, we complain to the Lord, don't we? We say, Lord, if only my circumstances were different, I could handle it. Or if only I had some financial deliverance in this time of stress. Or if only other people really understood where I was, I could bear it so much more easily. But you notice that David's first place of resort is none of these things. What is it? It is prayer. Do you notice that the very psalm begins with that note? Give ear to my words, O Lord, consider my sighing. Listen to my cry for help. Morning by morning, O Lord, you will hear my voice. Do you see what is happening? That he doesn't wait, you see, until the battle is joined. to take this resort. Before the battle has been joined with his enemies, he is already in the place of prayer. Isn't that the emphasis of morning by morning? You will hear my voice. The place of first resort for him is the place of prayer. Now, my dear friends, I want to ask you a question, a question that rebukes me as a minister and as a teaching elder this evening. How familiar are those great hymns of the church that speak about the place and the ministry of prayer to us? They are, I think, very familiar to us, on our lips. But what about the experience of our hearts? The truths that we sing in these great hymns on prayer, about prayer being the place of first resort, are you practicing that this evening? And I ask myself, am I? I believe that one of the greatest hymns in the English language on the subject of prayer, one, alas, that I don't think is even in our red book that we use in the morning, is the great hymn by Gordon, by John Newton, I'm sorry, Approach my soul, the mercy seat, where Jesus answers prayer. There humbly fall before his feet, for none can perish there. And you remember how it goes on, perhaps. Bowed down beneath a load of sin, by Satan sorely pressed, the enemy, you see, by war without and fears within, I come to thee for rest. Well, let me ask you this evening, do you come to God for rest? Is that your place of first resort? Or another of these great hymns, Christian, seek not yet repose, cast thy dreams of ease away, thou art in the midst of foes. Watch and pray. Do you watch and pray as your very first place of resort? 
Or that great hymn, sweet hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer, that calls me from a world of care, and so forth. Does our experience match up with our singing? Now listen, David could not cope with this situation without first being in tune with the Lord in prayer. And so I want to call your attention as we draw to a conclusion this evening to the three great elements, the lineaments, if you like, of David's prayer as it is set forth in this great psalm. There are three aspects of David's prayer that stand out like beacon lights. First of all, his earnestness. Now, a moment ago, I quoted that great hymn, Sweet Hour of Prayer, Sweet Hour of Prayer. But I want to tell you that in some sense, the hour of prayer is not sweet at all. Of course, in one wonderful sense it is. But in our praying, you see, there should be the earnestness that David shows in this great psalm. And that is the first and outstanding description of his prayer in verses 1 to 3. Did you notice that? Give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my sighing. What does David do as he is surrounded by these enemies, as all human help has gone, and humanly speaking, his position seems utterly hopeless? He doesn't just mouth words to God. You notice how he describes this ministry of prayer that he has. He says, Lord, give ear not only to my words, but consider my sighing. The New English Bible renders it my inmost thoughts. The Revised Standard Version renders it my groanings. And that is the best translation of all. That is what David is really saying. Lord, hear my inward groanings, my barely audible self-communing with thee, the cry of my spirit that I cannot even articulate in words. In other words, the characteristic of this prayer is its earnestness and its intensity. My Christian brothers and sisters this evening, do you know anything of this? I reminded you as we preached through Romans 8 in that series of sermons in the fall that the highest form of prayer according to Romans 8 verse 26 is this. It is a groaning out of our condition before the Lord where the Holy Spirit inwardly is making intercession for the people of God with sighings that are beyond the power of human speech to utter. The earnestness of David's prayer. My dear brothers and sisters in the Lord, that is a wonderful thing. If in your prayers you are coming to the Lord through prayer as your first resort and groaning out, your condition before him. And you notice what happens, don't you, in verse 2? As, as he, the Lord considers David sighing, 
He is enabled in this ministry of prayer, you see, to go on to greater clarity in his prayers. He says, listen now to my cry for help. This inner, barely audible groaning out of his condition has become an audible cry for help and leads at the end of verse 2, you see, and into verse 3 to the well-ordered and articulated and disciplined prayer as David lays out his requests before the Lord. Earnestness. Now here is the second characteristic of David's praying. It is the orderliness of David's prayer, and you have that in verse 3. He says, O Lord, hear my voice. Morning by morning, I lay my requests before you. Now that language may not convey very much to us in the English translation, but in the Hebrew it immediately suggests sacrificial language. You see, it's the language that is used frequently in the scriptures for a sacrifice being prepared as the priest came into the presence of God and he got the altar ready in Old Testament times. First of all, he laid out the wood upon it and then he divided the animal into its several pieces and carefully laid them on the prepared wood and finally he lit the fire on the altar and prayer went up. For the sacrifice went up as a sweet-smelling savor in the Lord's presence. And it is this word, you see, laying in order, that David now uses to describe the orderliness of his prayer. Now, you see, it suggests to us that prayer is a sacrifice, and indeed we know it is from the New Testament scriptures. The offerings of our money and the offerings of prayer and the offerings of praise are the three continuing sacrifices of the New Testament. There are no longer bloody sacrifices to be offered. But prayer is the sacrifice that we should offer in an orderly way. Now, do you notice what David is saying to us? He says, Lord, when I come before you, my offering of prayer is not a disorderly dance of empty words. I come like the morning sacrifice into your presence, just as morning by morning the priest comes to the temple and prepares the order for those lovely sacrifices of the old covenant. So I come before you and with equal diligence... I prepare my prayer in your presence. And as you and I look at the structure of that prayer throughout this psalm, how wonderful it is. Do you notice what David is doing? Let me remind you quickly of that structure. Verses 1 to 3. He appeals to God in his emergency. He talks out his concern and his condition with the Lord. And then in verses 4 to 6, in an orderly way, he asks the question of his soul, why should God hear me? And he says, because God is never on the side of sin. Do you prepare your prayers in that way? 
Do you ask yourself, as you are in the presence of God, why should he hear me? And do you say an answer and incorporate this into your prayer? Because God is never on the side of sin. And whatever discouragement and opposition I'm facing, I know that he is on my side by his grace and not on the side of the other. And then in verses 7 to 8, David enters into the grace of God and reminds himself of his dependence upon divine grace. And then in verses 9 and 10 in this orderly prayer, he says, Lord, I am siding with you against these wicked and rebellious enemies of yours. And you and I might say, well, that's not nice to come before God in that way and pray down judgment upon our enemies, isn't it? Shouldn't we pray for this? Having prayed that they may turn to him in repentance, and having prayed, Lord, show them how wrong they are, we should then go on to pray, Lord, let them fall by their own wicked counsel if they do not repent in your sight and presence. And then at the end of that lovely prayer, he prays that others too in the church may join with him in his sense of deliverance and delight. It's not a me, me, me prayer. It's orderly and it's structured and it's full of scriptural wisdom and instruction. My dear brother and sister in Christ, do you carefully prepare your prayers as you are living in enemy territory and see them as a sacrifice but ascend with a sweet smelling savour from the altar of your preparation in the presence of God? Now thirdly, as I finish this evening, the third characteristic of this prayer is that he watches intently. Do you see that at the end of verse 3? And I wait, he says, in expectation. What is he waiting for? The answer to his orderly prayers. He expects God to act. Do you expect God to act in answer to your prayers? Do you come before this great Lord of heaven and earth on the same covenantal basis that David did in his opening prayer? My God, he says, my king, though David himself was a king. Do you give your prayers that firm footing of the sovereignty of God and his covenantal relationship with his people? so that you can set all the opposition in its true perspective. Lord, you are a king. You are my God. All power rests with you. You are able to answer me at any moment, in any way of your choosing. And I am watching, and I am waiting in your holy presence with the expectancy of faith. Isn't this the great characteristic of the prayers of godly men and women all through Scripture? Micah 7, verse 7. I will look to the Lord, says the prophet. I will wait for him. 
And then he says, I shall behold his deliverance. Or the prophet Habakkuk, you remember in that memorable passage in Habakkuk chapter 2 where he says, I will stand upon the watchtower and look for his answer. He watches intently and expectantly. As I close this evening, let me draw all this to a conclusion. Are you concerned this evening about our congregational situation? Do you question, as some perhaps are questioning, Lord, in what direction are you leading us? What is our future precisely? What are we to do? What are our obligations and responsibilities at this moment of our experience? Are you saying to him as you live in the midst of enemy territory, Lord, deliver me out of the hand of the enemy. Change my personal circumstances. What is your place of first resort as you seek his face, as you've looked at the opposition and it's almost intimidated you? Is it the resort of prayer? Listen, we can never in this life get beyond the means of grace. Don't try to. And the very first and most important in many ways of the means of grace is the resort of the Christian to heavenly, persevering intercession. I urge upon you this evening, my dear friends, earnestness, orderliness, expectancy in your prayers. Because without these things, we shall never prosper. And without them, the kingdom of God shall not prevail in its fullness. David was not secure in his circumstances. But he was secure in the presence of his God. And may that be your security and mine this evening. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, as we have been among very rich and wonderful things, again we are amazed that from these ancient scriptures of the old covenant church, there is so much that instructs us and inspires us today. So apply these things to all our hearts and minds, and make us not only people of the book, but people of prayer as well. For Christ's sake, amen.